On your screen is one of the most iconic religious pieces of art of all times, Albrecht Durer's Praying Hands. Now, we don't know a lot about why it was produced in terms of details. There are some legends that surround this work of art. Most of them have been debunked. Uh, but what I want to do is focus on the art itself this morning. Um, it's an amazing work. Uh, you may not know uh, just this bit of information. It was a pen and ink sketch, uh, most likely drawn to show his skills to possible patrons. But if you've ever really taken a good look at this work of art, it's absolutely amazing in the detail. The veins in the hands, the, the wrinkles, and, and uh, look like calluses on hands that are well-worn. And you can just tell this is someone who's, who's had a life. And they're turning to God in a time of prayer. It's an absolutely beautiful work of art. It raises a question for me, why do we fold our hands in prayer? Um, why do we bow our heads Fold our hands, and I'm going to say something, and please don't throw anything. Um, it's not biblical. Now, when I say it's not biblical, when I say it's not, I'll talk with him later. Uh, when I say it's not biblical, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying there is no passage of Scripture that says, fold your hands, bow your heads, and pray. What we do know in biblical times, the most common posture of prayer was standing with your arms stretched out looking toward heaven. And now, not a lot of us do that. And more of us probably at some point in our prayer life will have a posture like this. Or you saw the picture on the screen earlier like this. We don't know for sure one of the reasons I like folded hands is because it is a sign of submission. It is a sign of humility. It is recognizing physically that I'm going to one who is superior than I am. I'm going to the God who can hear my prayers and do something about them. And so it's a beautiful work of art. And every time I see it, I am reminded of this incredible gift that God has given us of prayer. And today we're going to take a look at a promise, the promise of answered prayer. John is going to write to his people, and he's going to tell them we can have confidence in coming to God. Now, this grows immediately out of the passage we looked at last week, when we saw John writing about the confidence we had that we have eternal life, that we belong to the Son, that we have the Son in our life. And so since Christ is in our lives, he is part of who we are, it makes a logical leap that we now can have confidence whenever we come to him. And the word that John is going to use for confidence here uh, is a word that means free and fearless confidence. It means uh, cheerful courage. It means boldness. It means assurance. So John's text asserted that the eternal God, the God who created this universe, listens and responds to his children. I like what Curtis Vaughn said decades ago 
when he said God is actually more ready to hear than we are to pray. He He's waiting to listen for his children to call upon him. And C.S. Purgeon uh, powerfully made a statement to his congregation in London. He said, brethren, if there be a God, and if this book be his word, if God be true, prayer must be answered. And let us on our knees go to the sacred engagement as to the work of real efficacy. Let's get to the work. And I'm telling you today, right here, right now, March 28, 2021, the body of Christ around this world, the body of Christ in our land, in our state, in our present, we need to reaffirm our confidence that God truly listens. We need to reaffirm God's promise. And so we're going to take a look at it. And it's found in 1 John 5, 14 through 17. And I want you to listen carefully to the word of the Lord. For John has something important to say to us today. And he wrote, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. This is a powerful passage of Scripture, and John was reaffirming, assuring his people who have been bombarded by false teachers right and left. He's assuring them God answers prayers. And we need to own that assurance. We need to own that confidence. We need to understand God answers prayer. And we actually say we believe he does. But in all seriousness, how can we be certain that God hears and answers prayers? Well, I happen to agree with Brother Spurgeon. This is the word of God. And within the pages, within the verses I just read to you, we have several promises that can carry us and assure us and give us confidence whenever we pray before God. So let's jump in to those promises, okay? Let's take a look at them. And the very first, we can be confident that God hears as we pray in His will. Now I want to I stress something important. When John wrote that God hears, he's not just saying his ears are open and sounds are coming in. Everybody here knows you can hear and not really hear, right? Uh, just, just ask a wife about her husband. Uh, we, we can hear without hearing. But the word that John uses here is one of his favorite words. He uses it 59 times in his gospel, and he uses it 16 in his letters. And it means to favorably listen, not just to hear, but to attentively listen with favor. It means to understand. So John was telling his readers 
We need to know that when we come to God in prayer, submitted to his will, he understands, he knows, and he's listening favorably to what we're saying. And that's important because God is caring and listening. Now, John understood that a foundational basis for all true prayer is very simply, I, the prayer, must submit and subordinate what I want, my will, to the will of the Father. I've got to be sure that my heart is leaned toward him. And in the gospel that John wrote, he records two different events where Jesus spoke about prayer. It's during his uh, John 14 through 16, this, his preparing his here, his followers for his oncoming death. And he wrote at one point when this John was his connection to prayer to the will. This is an essential, an essential key to effective prayer. And he's going to let us see that in his gospels. Well, the spirit of the Lord led him to record about Jesus reaffirms this. Prayer in the will of God is essential for effective prayer life. So what did Jesus have to say? Well, you helped me read it earlier, but we're going to look at it again and give you the scriptural reference. In John 15, 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, please look, Jesus doesn't say, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, does he? He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. In other words, you have a vital, meaningful, submissive relationship to me. My word has captured your heart. You live in me. At that point, you can ask. And then he said, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So in John 14, 13 and 14, John has Jesus saying, ask whatever you want, I'll do it. No, if you ask in my name, and this is just a little bit of corrective, Praying in the name of Jesus does not mean at the end of your prayer saying in the name of Jesus, amen. Now, I do that uh, mainly because I don't want to have to uh, explain every time I pray. But every time you are praying as a Christian whose heart is intent on following God, you are praying in the name of Jesus. Because what does that mean? In the name of Jesus means we are praying under his authority. We are praying in submission to who he is. In the name of Jesus means everything he's done, everything he is, everything he wants to be in our lives. So John records Jesus saying, when you pray like that and your prayers are guided by your relationship with me and your commitment and your submission to me, then ask whatever you wish. Now, the wonderful thing about Jesus is he just didn't teach us. He modeled for us. In the book of Mark, perhaps the most painful prayer in Scripture, 
is found in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the scripture says, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. The human Jesus, he is God and man. The idea of facing the cross and what that death meant pulls him back for a moment. And it's as almost if he says, I I want there to be another way. I I want to be able to save without having to do this. But then he does something amazing. But what I want isn't important. What you want is crucial. An amazing prayer. And with this provision in mind, praying in the will of God, John declared those who are in the Son have complete freedom to come and approach God. Because we have acknowledged His infinite, majestic wisdom absolutely knows what's best for us. And we can trust Him there. So we come to this place of submitting our will to His. And as has been pointed out, every time I give my will over to the Father, it is not chaining me. It's freeing me to become all I can possibly be because I'm going to the one who cares the most for me. Now, I'm going to say something now because I have to. I absolutely have to say this, and I hate that I have to say this. But when we look at what John is saying, praying in the will of God, we need to acknowledge God is not our blank check. God is not our blank check. And the reason I have to say this, there are people who teach and make it sound like he is. We start looking at the promises of prayer, and they are many. Just hundreds of promises of prayer. And there are people who are out there teaching, if you know the right words and you know the right promise and you say everything correctly and you just trust, then you can, God has to answer you. First of all, that's kind of got a mixed up idea about God and ourselves. The promises of prayer were never meant to be taken as we can twist God's arm to make him hear. Folks, the promises of prayer are there to remind us what John has already said. God listens favorably to us. I don't have to, I don't have to write out a document and get God to sign it to guarantee he'll do whatever I want. Those promises say pray, seek his face, bring your burdens to him because he cares for you. No, God is not. Now, I, Some of you know your Bible may say, but Danny, 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 there's a passage of Scripture that says, God will give me the desires of my heart. And there is. But you can't just take part of the passage. It's found in Psalm 37. And listen to all that the psalmist says has to happen before 
God gives us the desires of our heart. He says, Psalm 37, 4 and 6, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. Did you hear that? This isn't just God will give you whatever you want. Folks, I can pray from Nahir to the end of time that my Mitsubishi is transformed into a Rolls Royce with enough money to buy the gas. And every morning I get up and run out to my car, it's still going to be a Mitsubishi. Now, it's not just a Mitsubishi, it's a Mitsubishi Mirage, which also says, okay, Danny, you need to be in the real world. If I delight in the Lord, if I commit myself in the Lord, if I trust in the Lord, I am submitting everything I am over into his hands. And he will give me the desires of my heart because the desires of my heart are changing. Do you catch the psalmist, Jonathan, our desires begin to become more in line with what God wants for us. Suddenly, I'm not just praying selfish little prayers. And I know that sounds horrible for me to say that. I'm not praying selfish prayers. Lord, give me, give me, give me this. I want this and I want that. And Lord, please make me a millionaire. Lord, and, and, and normally it's kind of like, Lord, make me a millionaire and I will help so many people with that money. I long ago decided God doesn't think I'd be a good millionaire. Uh, he probably knows what I, that I would not do with that money all that I think I would. We are submitting ourselves with God. And when we do, James tells us that you can pray and be wrong if you're not in the will of the Father. James 4.3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives with, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What James is saying, what John is saying, faith that God will answer is not the only prerequisite. You can gather two or more. You can gather a thousand. And if you're not praying in line with what God wants, James says, you're just wanting your selfish stuff and God's not going to respond to that. So when you and I learn what it means to submit ourselves to the will of the Father, we learn what it means to commit ourselves to Him, to trust in Him. We have a commitment to make. We have a commitment. We can have a mature, confident prayer life in the Lord. All of a sudden, I'm concerned about what God wants for me. All of a sudden, it's not Danny first. And I seek God. And I pray to God. Jessica, when Jessica was three years old at Audubon Zoo, they used to let you ride elephants and camels. They won't do that anymore. A lawyer figured out the liability, I guess. So my child and I rode on an elephant. Uh, I sat on the shoulder blades, which made it a very uncomfortable ride. We got off the elephant. At that point, my three-year-old daughter wanted to ride everything in the zoo. 
she wanted to ride the camel. I said, no, we just, we told you to pick one. She wanted to ride the antelope. She wanted to ride the alligator and the rhino. And it's hard to convince a three-year-old you can't. As a child of God, sometimes we get so wrapped in what we want, we're not hearing our Father. Because sometimes God's answer to our prayers is no. So we want to have a confident, mature prayer life. As we move forward in submission to God, we start praying the things He wants us to pray. We start praying for things that matter that have far more than instant material answers. All of a sudden, we start finding out what it means to really pray. Which leads us to the next promise. When we have learned that God listens favorably, He hears prayers prayed in His will, we are ready for the next promise. We can be confident that God answers the prayers He hears. John said he's listening favorably, but he doesn't want to leave it there. So he wants his readers to understand, and he just point blank tells them. God hears, so what does that mean? John made a definitive statement that God responds favorably to prayer submitted to his will. He doesn't just hear favorably, he actually responds to those prayers. Now, what seems to be John's argument, now, if you are not praying according to the will of God, you really don't have the confidence here. But if you submitted your will to God, you're seeking his faith, you're seeking his will, you can pray, and God works. Well, why doesn't God just give us what we want? A lot of people say that, but why doesn't he? After all, doesn't a parent lovingly provide for their child? Yes. But there's a difference between provision and indulgence. God is our Father. And I need you to hold on to something again. God's primary concern for your life is not to make you happy. God's primary concern Desire for your life is not to make you happy. It's to make you holy. It's to make you into the person you were created and redeemed to be. God wants you to have joy. But there's a world of difference between joy and happiness. A world of difference. And so, He doesn't just give us whatever we have as a whim. And most parents in this room, I will confess, so you don't have to feel bad when I confess for you too. Most of us at some point or another have given something to our child just to get them to stop. Okay, here. God isn't our father that gives into us our whims. He is a father who demands of us commitment. He is not our grandfather who slips us something under the table when mom and dad aren't looking. God is our father. And prayer is not a convenient way of trying to flip the will of God to make his will become what we want, to impose our will upon him or to convince him our will is best. Prayer 
primarily is about aligning our hearts with the hearts of our Father, our commitment to what He wants us to be. And that happens in prayer. When we pray, we seek the will of God. When we pray, we embrace the will of God. When we pray, we align ourselves up with the will of God. So the promise is linked without hesitation to prayer according to the will of God. Now, interestingly, John says if we pray according to his will, he hears us, and if he hears us, we have what he we ask from him. Notice, we have what we ask from him, not we will obtain. It's present tense. God is telling us in his word, when we pray according to his will, he answers immediately. Now, our problem is we don't always see the answer. It's not always crystal clear. There are some prayers that, yes, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, that are answered immediately. And I'm not talking about overnight. There are some prayers that are answered, pow. And then there are some answers we don't see till a little bit later down the line. And there's some answers we might not ever see in this life. The Word of God says that Abraham left Ur of Chaldea and made his way to Canaan on the promise of God. And that Abraham died not having received the fullness of that promise. He never did get to see his seed like sand on the seashore or stars in the sky. He never did get to see his seed occupy all of Canaan. But that didn't change the fact that he believed God. He sought God and God followed through with the promise to Abraham. The reality is our petitions are granted whether we are able to see them or not. And there is a tremendous promise that we have from God that that lets us know the promise is true even if we cannot always see it. There's a promise here. God answers immediately. We may not see it, but he answers. And I'm about to hit you with another promise within the word of God. And I know that we don't have a whole lot of ameners, but this is this is amen material. Okay? I'm just going to let you hear it, okay? Second Corinthians. Paul is writing to his, his people and makes this incredible statement in Second Corinthians chapter 120. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Let that sink in, people. All of the hundreds of promises that are made in, to, in the Word of God for us are all wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here is a promise. What's the answer? Yes, in Jesus. Here's another. What's the answer? Yes, in Jesus. It is all about Him and our connection, our relationship with Him. And Paul finishes his thought by saying, and so through Him, through Jesus, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. I'm coming to you, Lord. I'm asking you for this thing that you have said to pray about in your will. I'm praying it. I'm confident that it's real. 
because Jesus is in my life. I've submitted myself to him. So because of Jesus, amen. So be it. That's just an amazing reality. In 1857, there was a gentleman by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. He was 46 years old, and he had a burden for the city of New York. He didn't know what he could do about it, but he just knew he had a burden for New York City. And God kept on amping up that burden till finally his church said, we want to make you a missionary in the inner part of New York City. And God said, you need to do this. So he started walking the streets of New York City, up and down streets, handing out tracts, talking about Jesus to everybody he could meet, and had virtually no results. And there comes a point in time when the strongest people need another word, and God just gave him another word of encouragement. He said, pray, pray for New York. And so he published uh, hundreds of flyers and posters, put them gave them to everybody who would take one, posted them all over New York City, and made an invitation to come to the third floor of the Old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York City from 12 to 1 o'clock on Wednesday. We're going to pray for our city. Wednesday comes, and no one's there. So Lanfear starts praying by himself for his city. For 30 minutes he prays, and then after about 30 minutes, about four more men walked in. The next week, 20 more people show up. The next week, between 30 and 40 people show up, and they tell Lamphere, we don't want to pray on Wednesdays from 12 to 1 anymore. We want to pray every day from 12 to 1 for our city. And these people began a prayer meeting like you wouldn't believe. Every day, 12 to 1, they're praying for the city. And a a few ministers wind up coming to the prayer meeting and said, we need to do this in our churches. And they went back. And within a very short time, 5,000 daily prayer meetings were going on from 12 to 1 for New York City. And the word got out. And all of a sudden, there are prayer meetings in Philadelphia. There are prayer meetings in Detroit. There are prayer meetings in Washington, D.C. And even the President of the United States, Franklin Pierce, made almost every daily prayer meeting. I don't know if we'll ever hear about that in our lifetime again. It was amazing. And about 15,000 cities and towns and villages throughout the United States launched into an incredible time of prayer every day, 12 to 1, praying for this nation. And literally, thousands upon thousands of people became followers of Christ. And then some who had grown cold were reheated. It's known as the revival of 1857 to 1858, but it actually spread into 1859. And do you know what I really love about this revival of God? It's different than 
some of the other great awakenings in our country. What is absolutely special to me about this revival, there were no famous preachers involved. There were no Jonathan Edwards. There were no John Wesleys or George Whitfields. There were no Billy Grahams, if you were. This started in what was the heart of a layman committed to reaching his people and praying. Absolutely, positively, one of the most exciting stories in church history for me. We can rest on the promise of God's answered prayer in a world of uncertainty. We can rest on this promise. You see, I don't know what's going to be down the road for us in a year. I don't know what our country will look like in 10 years. Folks, I can't even say for sure what's going to happen tomorrow. I have plans, but we all know how that works at times. But the one thing I do know, the one thing my heart cries out, God is on his throne God is listening to his people. Ken Meadham is saying back in 1907, Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us love. Send us power. Send us grace. And God is wanting to do that. And that gives us strength to carry on. Well, our next promise is a little bit different. It's still in the line of promised prayer, but now he's going to give us an example. Verses 16 and 17 come across virtually as commands. But listen to what he had to say, because he told us we can be confident that God hears and answers prayers of intercession. God hears you when you're praying according to his will. He answers, uh, uh, gives you the answer when you are praying. But now he's talking about intercession. And intercession essentially is praying for each other. And the Apostle John pointed to the much-needed prayer of intercession in his discussion. God hears prayers of intercession. But I want you to notice, John just didn't say pray for each other. He does say that, but he's not saying pray here. He's not saying Pray because of sickness or pray because of financial need or pray because of emotional struggles. Although he would certainly want us to pray that. John just gets right in our faces. When you see a brother or sister in sin, pray for them and God will give them life. Now, I know they didn't use the phrase comfort zone back in John's day, but this is way out of our comfort zone. We will pray for somebody's physical needs at the drop of a hat. We will pray for their financial needs at the drop of a hat. But I'm supposed to pray when I see somebody sinning? <laughs> That's a little personal there. That's what it, what do you mean? How can I, a Christian, 
who can still stumble and sin myself have the nerve, the audacity, the arrogance to pray for this brother or sister over here or this one over here who's sinning? How can I pray for them? That just feels hypocritical. But will you notice that John put this very specific burden on every child of God? When you see your brother or sister walking outside of the will of God, pray for them. When he says God will give them life, he's saying God will restore them. God will bring them back to where they need to be. When they leave this world and enter into glory, they're not being kicked out. God is saying to us to pray for brothers and sisters and ask God for forgiveness. We are not free to close our eyes and pretend everything's okay. We need to be praying for spiritual needs. If love exists in the family of God, and it must, if it really is the family of God, then we've got to look out for each other. We've got to be praying for each other. Now, he does throw a kink in the machine that just confuses us all. Because he says, if you see them pray, uh, sinning, and, and it's not a sin unto death, what did he mean by sin unto death? We don't know for sure, because he didn't explain it. Now, when I was very young, I had it all figured out. I just knew that what he meant, when you see a brother or sin, sister sinning, and they won't repent, God will punish them with death to take them out of the scene so they will not be a mockery to God. And it sounded, that's unreasonable to me. But you know something funny about the book of John, First John? When he uses the words life and death, he's speaking about eternal life and death. So whatever the sin of death is, it is a, a death of eternity. I also want you to notice when he talks about people sinning unto the sin of death, he does not call them brother or sister. There is a sin unto death, and those who commit it, I'm not telling you to pray for them. Now, let's look at the whole context of the book of John, First John, and all throughout the book, he is fighting against false teachers. And I think that's the clue here. They had aligned themselves with the church. They said they were followers of Christ, but then their true colors came out and they said, Jesus was not the Christ. He is not the Son come in the flesh. He is not the one who died an atoning death for us. That's all malarkey. If you want the truth, you follow us. We'll give you the truth. Some people have said perhaps the sin of death is what John, Jesus refers to as the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only unpardonable sin, complete and total rejection of the revealed purpose and work of God in Christ. I also want you to know, John didn't say you can't pray for them. Did you notice that? He just said, I'm not going to tell you to pray for them. In other words, I'm not going to recommend you pray for them. So if you have someone in your life who is fighting God tooth and nail, you are free to keep praying. But John is making a recognition these false teachers have long ago left any call of God in their lives. So what is he getting at? Pray for brothers and sin sisters who are sinning. 
He is telling us the scope of our prayers must not be limited to our needs. And everybody here can understand this. Sometimes our needs are so much in our face that that's all we can see, right? Sometimes we can't look beyond the immediate need that we have. We are told to carry our burdens, our cares to the Lord because he cares for us. But when he told us, when the word tells us as it doesn't mean be so tunneled vision that you can't see anybody else's needs. Be aware of what's going on around you. I'm telling you right here, right now, God is looking for some people serious about intercession. There's a passage in the book of Ezekiel. I haven't quite taken you from Genesis to Revelation today, but I'm trying. A passage in the book of Ezekiel, I think is one of the saddest statements of Scripture ever recorded. Ezekiel 22.30 I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. God had sent prophets warning people the judgment was coming, but he could not find any of the people of Judah committed enough to say, God, forgive us. He couldn't find people who were interceding on behalf of his people. I wonder, what does God find in South Mississippi? In Biloxi and in Gulfport, in Ocean Springs and Bay St. Louis, in Gaucher and Pas Christiane and Pascagoula. Will God find people who are praying? Will he find people who are committed to seeking his face on behalf of brothers and sisters who are out of the will of God? I have told you, I believe that we are in desperate need of awakening and that it must begin in us. So folks, I'm asking you, don't, don't just pray for your personal revival. Pray for the body of Christ that is sick right now and needs to come back to where God wants us to be. In an article, a contested universe, Erwin Lutzer talks about watching a show on the animal planet. And it was a rather gruesome episode, a pride of lions on the hunt. They want a buffalo for lunch. And it shows six lions tracking a buffalo herd. And finally, one of the buffalo gets so interested in what he's eating, I guess, he lets the rest get ahead of him, about 200 yards. And the lions now have their target. How do lions take down a cake buffalo? One will grab its one hind leg, one will grab the other hind leg, and hold on until the buffalo will stop. And then one will pounce on top, one will come underneath, and I will save all of the grisliness to your own imagination. I'll just tell you, the lions got lunch that day. And then Irwin said what shocked him, with the video footage of what he was seeing, he could see about a hundred or more buffalo 
standing about 200 yards away, watching it all go down. And they just stood there. So I don't know if Buffalo think, but if they do, I think they would probably think, man, I am really glad that's not me. They said, but what if, what if Buffalo made a decision? No, never again. That's not ever going to happen again to our friends, our family. And a hundred Buffalo with their horns pointed strategically start charging six lions. Said the lions would have run away. Scurried away as quickly as possible. And from that point on, no lion would ever have had buffalo for lunch again. And then he brings it home. There's a lesson for us there. First of all, Satan separates somebody from the Lord, uh, the herd. He makes them mad at the church and Christians are angry because of some other reason. Once they're away from the herd, he intensifies his attack. And then when we hear of the spiritual demonic struggles that a person faces, we say to ourselves, boy, am I ever glad that's not me. What we have to do as a congregation is to hang together. We have to close in and say, we will not allow the devil to do this to our people. And so we intercede. Which also means that When we're hurting, we need to let other people know so they can pray for us. Our commitment today. Let's take seriously a call to stand in the gap for brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because somewhere, sometime in your life, somebody prayed for you. And I I can attest that in my own life because I've had people come to me and say, Brother Danny, or just Danny, way back when, I'm praying for you because you are messed up. And thankfully, God gave me the ears to hear. We need, we can't break the chain. James Montgomery Boyce talks about the incredible prayer life of Martin Luther, how bold it was. And he said the secret to Martin Luther's bold prayer was his being in the will of God and conscious of staying within the will of God. He got a letter from a uh, one of his helpers in the Reformation, Frederick Myconius. Myconius was on his deathbed. And he wrote Luther a letter and said, I'm on my deathbed. I'm, I'm, I'm headed out. And it, w- it won't be just a few days. And Martin Luther received the letter and very quickly wrote an answer and sent it to him. And we have recorded Martin Luther's letter. I commend you to the name of God to, I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. This is my will and may my will be done because I seek only to glorify the name of God. And boy says, that almost shocks us. That doesn't almost shock us. It shocks the socks off of us. My will? I command? But did you catch that last phrase? I don't do anything except for the glory of God. And guess what? Apparently, 
It was the will of God. Myconius gets the letter, and by this time he has lost his ability to speak. He will be gone in a matter of days. Instead, in a matter of days, he was completely healed. He lived six more years, and he outlived Luther two months. Folks, we can trust in the promise of answered prayer. If we are committed to the concept, we need to pray according to the will of God. We need to make sure that our lives are submitted to him, that we are following him, and everything we see and do, we know. And folks, guess what? We know it is the will of God that we pray for brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. We know that. How? Because he said it. We can pray according to his will for brothers and sisters, for God to move and God to forgive and God to restore. You and I may not live to see it happen, but this is the will of God. And we know when we pray according to the will of God, he gives us what we ask. So today, are you willing to make that that choice? I'm going to ask you, if you want, you are free to come and pray here at the altar. Where you're at, are you willing to say, Lord, I don't want to play games. I want to follow you. I want to commit myself into your hands. And I want to be the kind of person that prays for my brothers and sisters, not just when they're having a pain, but when they are out of the will of God. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And again, if you want to make your way up to the front, feel free to do so. And if you would like after service to pray with me, we will do so. But right now, you open up your heart to God. And let's pray that more and more people will hear this call. More and more people will say yes to the call of Christ to be prayers. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's just do some business with the Lord.